You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Our Lord's Day worship this morning uh, continues with our scripture reading. So our new... Uh, Our New Testament reading this morning is from the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verses 22 to 27. If you don't have or didn't bring a Bible today, there should be a a Bible in the back of a pew near you, a black one like this. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take that home as a gift from Trinity Church Denver. When I conclude our reading, I will declare to you that this is the word of the Lord, and our corporate response is thanks be to God. Our New Testament reading, Revelation 21, verses 22 to 27. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring, it, bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our Old Testament reading and sermon text for today is from Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hecaphirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel That is why you were building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. Now the king will hear of these reports. So now come, let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now, when I went to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God, within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. 
For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, so that they could give me a bad name in, in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, your, your word, you have promised us that, that to live faithfully in this world, to believe in Jesus, to treasure Jesus, to love Jesus, to obey Jesus, um, to, to obey Jesus in all the ways that you've called us to live in the world, to build all the things that you've called us to build, and in in that those things should honor you, those things should glorify you, be it businesses or families or marriages or relationships, um, that, that all of those things, every single one of them are designed and given to us by you to honor you, that if we seek to live godly lives, that we will face opposition. And so God, I pray that you would use this text to help us to stop being surprised. I pray, oh God, that you would help us to, to, in in reading this text and understanding this text, Lord, you would help us to stop, stop thinking everything's fine when there is no opposition. You'd help us to stop believing that friendship with the world is a good thing. God, that you would realign our loyalties and our loves. You'd help us to have right expectations that we have enemies. And we're called to love them. But first, we have to have enemies. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, Last week's text from Nehemiah 4, this week's text from Nehemiah 6, um, if I'm going to be honest with you, is why I wanted us to get to Nehemiah. Um, There is at the heart of Nehemiah a vision of what does it mean to build a Christian community, what does it mean to build a Christian culture, what does it mean to live faithfully in every single arena of life um, in this world um, that that is beautiful and central, to I think, to the task that we've been called to as a people. Um, But but I I, I see an imbalance in the world. I see an imbalance um, in the church specifically, um, that has infected everything and all of our ways of thinking as Christians. If you've grown up at all as Christians in the last um, 20 or 30 years, maybe you're a brand new Christian, which is awesome. Um, but, but maybe you haven't. And if you haven't, if you've just grown up around kind of general evangelicalism over the course of the last 20 or 30 years, um, I believe there's been a terrible imbalance into how we think about the Christian mission and the Christian task and what it means to be loyal to Jesus and what it means to love our neighbor. And so I think Nehemiah sets out for us and particularly um, the, the conflict that ensues between, ne- between Nehemiah himself, Ezra, it happens with Ezra as well in the book of Ezra, um, but with Nehemiah and, and the, the Jews that have returned to Jerusalem and returned to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the city walls, the conflict that happens between them and their neighbors that, that is vitally important to us to see, to correct but what I think are misshapen expectations about what the Christian life should look like in the world. 
You see, we've, we've talked about this in the past, and we're going to just keep talking about it. But, but um, there, there is shot through the whole of Scripture um, a teaching that is not obscure. It's not hidden. It's actually on every single page. It just shows up everywhere. It first makes an appearance in Genesis 3.15, immediately after the fall, as God begins to predict and declare, here's what history will look like. And he says to the serpent, to the dragon, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed or your family and her seed or her family. The promise that ensues to her is that her family will be marked by the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. So right at the beginning, right after the entrance of sin into the world, God divides humanity. Divides humanity and says there will be enmity. Active opposition. This is by design. Just go over and over and over. You'll actually get to some other texts later in the sermon where Jesus makes these promises and claims. But to bring you all the way to, to what I think is one of the clearest texts expounding this in the New Testament, James 4.4. 4. You adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? You hear that? There's a logical equation in that sentence. A principle that's just absolutely and essentially true. It's a truth that I think we've forgotten. It's a truth that I think the the, the vast majority of Christian preachers, disciples, I put myself in this category, have often forgot or conveniently kind of, kind of swept and put a rug over it so that you wouldn't notice it. You adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. You hear that? It's not like wiggle room there. It doesn't say, whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world might be an enemy of God. Could be. Strong possibility of, doesn't say that. Will, whoever will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. So, so let me spell that out for you. Do you want to be an enemy of God? No, you don't. You, like, you really don't. Like, there's, there's a bunch of people in the world that you don't, wouldn't want to be their enemy. He would be top of the list. Like, if you could pick, like, the worst possible enemy, God would be the worst enemy to have. Infinite power, never gets tired. Everything he wants to happen always happens. Don't want that as an enemy, Right? So, if you want to be an enemy of God, be a friend of the world. If you don't want to be an enemy of God, 
And you should not want to be a friend of the world. You see, there's a divide that shoots through all of history. It shoots through all of humanity. It is a division between belief and unbelief. It is a division between the righteous and the wicked. It is a division between the children of Adam and the children of Abraham and the children of God. Um, It is a division that runs through the whole of history. And, and, And here's the thing. The most successful pastors over the last 40 years have largely become successful by hiding that. Like we have discipled you for decades into teaching you that love, that justice, that righteousness, that loving your neighbor means being a friend of the world. But by... By taking this infinite divide that exists between those who believe in God and love God and want to obey God and those who don't and doing everything we can to minimize it, to cover it over. Um, It's like there's a, a giant ditch right here with spikes at the bottom and you will fall to your death. And rather than shouting and pointing and saying, hey, there is a ditch here. There's a division here that you... You cannot fall in. If you fall into this ditch, you will die forever and ever and ever. Um, But instead of pointing that out, we've covered it over with a thin veneer of leaves and branches so that you won't see it. To say again and again and again that there is no division, there is no difference. And there is, at the heart of the world, a division We do ourselves and we do our neighbors no service to pretend that that division is not real and essential and devastating and central to interpreting and understanding the world. And it's that division that that we first saw last week in Nehemiah chapter 4 that the call to build a Christian city, the call to build a Christian culture, Christian community, Christian family, Christian church, to build anything that expresses faithfulness and godliness, that expresses a real love and devotion to God and seeking to obey his word, that any time you set out to do that, you are going to face real opposition. And so um, the, 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 what, I, what I think is just a Wonderful image. This image of, hey, we're, we're ultimately and supremely trying to build something. Um, and, and so we have shovels and trowels. And there's, there's, there's work to be done. And so we're at work trying to positively build these things in the world. Tangible things that express and glorify God. That's, that's the chief end of man. It's the chief end of man's businesses. It's the chief end of man's families. It's the chief end of man's marriages. It's the chief end of man's driving and eating and drinking and spending. And all of it is to glorify God. So positively, we set out to build things that glorify God. In other words, they are built according to the word of God. All of it. And we will face opposition, 
real opposition as we do so. Therefore, you must have a sword. So the image is, if you're going to build anything that's good and godly, um, then you better get to work. You better get the tools necessary to build that work, whatever that thing is, and you better be ready to fight. You will not be left alone as you do so. And so you need a trowel, shovel, hammer, programming skills, the ability to do like a spreadsheet, work in QuickBooks probably. Avoid that. Feels godless to me. (laughs) The ability to make good coffee or good pancakes, dads especially. Whatever the thing is, you, you need the tools to build. And you better know how to fight. You better have a sword. Do not think that it will be okay to be a pacifist as you build. You'll need a sword. And if you love what you're building, you will be willing to fight for it. You better be willing to fight for it. So with that established, I'm going to look now at Nehemiah chapter 6, a text that um, Justin so skillfully navigated for us with all the names. Um, favorite name in there. Um, actually, my favorite part of this whole thing is uh, <laughs> when they write the letter in just a minute that, that says, hey, look, we, we hear that you're in this big rebellion. Even Gashmu is saying it. You're like, who's Gashmu? Nobody knows who Gashmu is, but he said it. So, therefore, you're in trouble. Um, <laughs> pastor, I just wrote a book called Gashmu Saith It, uh, which kind of wins for best title ever. So, what's going on in Nehemiah chapter 6? And so the first question I'm going to get on the table kind of as we look at this um, is, who are all these people? Who's Sinbalit, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies? Who, who are these enemies? Um, they show up in Ezra. Uh, same group of people. Um, they, uh, they're, they're called Hornites. Um, they are descendants from the Amorites. They, they show up in the book of Ezra um, at first asking, hey, we want to help you build this, build this temple and build this altar. Um, they show up again here opposing the work of Nehemiah um, to rebuild the city. And so where do these people come from and who are they? Because we will get some incredible insights into who our enemies are by seeing who these people are. So first, um, they are, uh, at least except for Geshem, uh, Sanballat and Tobiah are uh, Hornites, we're told, um, and these are descendants of the Amorites. You're like, great, they're the Amorites. Um, But the Amorites are actually descendant from the Canaanites. So if you know anything of biblical history, um, you know that uh, as Israel came into the land, the land is overrun with idolatry and child sacrifice and wickedness and evil. Um, It was filled with Canaanites. And so Israel is told to bring the judgment of God against the Canaanites, to destroy them. Um, they don't completely. And, uh, and so the, the Canaanites, though, are kind of spread out all over kind of the north of Israel, and particularly um, just outside and beyond Israel. 
Um, and so as history kind of goes on, Israel then um, is brought under God's judgment and then um, taken by Nebuchadnezzar. We talked about this last or two weeks ago. Um, taken into exile. And so you have this land. Guess who moves into the land to kind of take over the cities and the farms and the, um, everything that was left once Israel leaves? The Ammonites. Amorites. The, the former Canaanites. These people. Um, they begin to intermarry with uh, the Israelites who were left or who weren't taken um, off to Babylon in exile and judgment. Um, and they bring their Canaanite gods and begin to worship these gods um, in the land. And what they find is they can't grow any crops. Like everything goes really, really badly for them. I mean, so everything's going badly for them. They can't get the crops to grow. They, their enemies keep um, coming against them. Like they're just having a miserable time in Israel as Israel's in exile they bring in their Canaanite gods, they're worshiping these gods, um, and they're trying to grow crops and, and build a new life in these remaining homes and cities, um, and nothing is working. And so a prophet is sent to them to say, hey, um, if you're going to grow crops here, you need to know that the, the God of this place is Yahweh, the, the God most high. And so they add, this is really important to notice, um, that they don't abandon their former gods, but instead they add to the pantheon of gods that they're worshiping, Worship of Yahweh. So at the high places, they rebuild some high places, they make sacrifices to Yahweh, um, but they keep worshiping their other gods. So, so now he's just one God among many gods. It's just one religion among many religions. Here's a religion, worship of Yahweh, intermingled with the worship of Moloch. It requires child sacrifice, killing of babies. Here's the worship of Yahweh intermingled with fertility gods, which requires the explicit, wicked celebration of sexual sin and immorality in every possible form, all mixed up together. The result was they started getting some crops. But this is who's left. This actually um, will become, in the New Testament, the Samaritans. Um, so the reason why the, the Jews hated the Samaritans is because this is who they are. And so uh, in, in Jesus' day, there's massive uh, cultural prejudice against anyone who's a Samaritan. Um, the, the story of the Good Samaritan. That's why that story is so scandalous in the Gospels. Because Jesus is saying, even someone descended from this wickedness, this corruption, can actually demonstrate the love of God and, and be saved. But that's who Sanballat and Tobiah and these enemies are. In other words, these aren't just complete pagans who don't know anything about Yahweh or Jesus. These aren't like the, the, the atheists. The opposition that Nehemiah and the Jews face as they pursue this task of building a godly life and culture. As they set out to worship Yahweh and Yahweh alone and to honor him and to glorify him in all of life. The opposition they face isn't coming from the atheists. Did you catch that? Like it's not Christopher Hitchens 
showing up outside the city walls and going, you guys better stop that because there is no God. It's not who this is. He would say it more British and smarter and funnier than that, but however he would say it. No, what, what the people that show up to oppose the work are religious people. They practice a religion deeply corrupted by the surrounding idolatries, but they're religious. Second thing I want us to look at. First, who they are. Two, what do they do? What does that opposition look like? What does the opposition look like that we should expect? Because I don't think it's any different. So, first it shows up in Ezra. They come to Ezra, they come to the Jews that come to rebuild the temple. They said, look, we worship Yahweh too. We're good at it. We've been here doing this for a while. We, we have all these other temples, high places, places and altars that we worship all of our gods. We're great at designing altars. Can we help you guys? We'd love to help you guys. Let us help you. We'll all build this altar together. We can all be like good neighborly people. We can pursue a common good together. An altar to Yahweh. Great. Whatever. Great. Let's do it. And Ezra says, no. And that's a hard text. <laughs> because you look at these people and there's no indication on the surface that they have any ill intent. That they, that they really are trying to like kill these people or get, get their money, do anything. There's nothing on the surface of the text that indicates that at all. Um, all you know is it's like, no, we're not going to let them help us build this altar and this temple. Um, to do so would be compromising with evil, compromising with idolatry in ways that we cannot and should not. In other words, there's a kind of good-natured compromise that comes against the work that God has called us to build. And then we move over to chapter 4, which we read through last week. We didn't spend much time talking about this, but, but in 4, 1 through 3, um, the shape that the opposition takes in Nehemiah 4 is mocking. Like you guys are silly and stupid. Your views are antiquated. Your views are, are maybe even maybe even bigoted. So there's mocking and taunting, laughing at what are you even trying to do? Like you guys believe in creation in six days? What are you idiots? Like science. You 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 think homosexuality is a sin? What's wrong with you? Like a, a kind of mocking attitude. Then in 4, 7 through 8, last text we'll look at before we get to 6, the threat of violence. Rumors of violence. Such that um, those who are building have to start carrying swords. And then we get to our text, 6, 1 through 4. Four times they send to Nehemiah and say, come and meet with us. Let's talk about this. 
Let's have a conversation about the project you're engaged in. Maybe we can compromise. We can come together. We can agree to disagree. We can agree on certain elements of what you're doing. We can approve kind of where you're placing this wall and how high it should go. And um, are there going to be places for archers in the wall? We're going to have a conversation um, apart from the work and kind of negotiate together over what it is exactly that you're setting out to build. Four times they sent to Nehemiah. And what was Nehemiah's response? Then there's work to be done. Why should I go and like talk to you about the work I've been called to do? But why should I try to like, let's come to a compromising position on the, on the thing that we've set out to do that, that, that God has sent me and these people to build. So opposition comes in the form of mocking. It comes in the form of kind of corrupting the work. And it comes in the form of distracting. Hey, um, it seems like you're building something there. Don't you think we should all get a say and have a conversation about what exactly it is that you're building? Like we should come to some agreements, right? Like you shouldn't hear in this threats of violence. You shouldn't hear in this um, kind of hidden agendas. Um, uh, first, and, or you should hear hidden agendas. You shouldn't hear in this, um, though, that they're kind of putting their cards on the table and saying, we are going to destroy and stop this work. No, you should hear in these inquiries, the inquiries of those around you who would say, and it looks like you're kind of building a Christian business there. Like, that's, maybe we should all get together and talk about it and come to some points of compromise. feels like you're building some sort of Christian school. Maybe we can come to kind of a more broad and, and, and a pluralistic understanding of what we're up to and how you can actually be a force for good for all people in the city. It um, looks like you're trying to build a Christian church where there's Christian worship. Um, how, maybe we should get together and talk and negotiate and, and debate kind of different aspects of Christian morality. What does the Bible really say about those things? And all four times Nehemiah's answer is, and I'm busy. I've got stuff to build. So opposition comes in the form of mocking, comes in just rumors of violence, comes in the form of distraction, the temptation to compromise. They're going to have real problems because of these people. Real problems. And Ezra, they had to stop the work for several years. And, and how tempting might it have been? Nehemiah shows up after the temple's completed. I mean, he, so he heard stories like that, that the building of the temple was, was, uh, was postponed for like decades. Just had to stop the work because of these people. How tempting was it for Nehemiah? Like, man, I really want to avoid that kind of situation. We should talk, grab some coffee. Maybe come to a mutual understanding. I can make sure I'm communicating in such a way that they know that I'm not opposed to them. Like, I'm just trying to do this thing over here. Yeah, I can just get them to kind of be on our side. But he saw it as a distraction to the actual work and task and building that he'd been called to do. And so he says, no. What happens next? Six, five, verses five and six. It says, in the same way, Sinbalat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter. So the four times didn't work. Now he sends a servant a fifth time with a letter. And it's an open letter, which means it's being read publicly. Sinbalat's doing something very strategic here. He wants everybody to hear this. All the Jews who are working alongside Nehemiah, he wants them to hear what's in this letter. What does the letter say? It is reported among the nations. 
It's like a dramatic opening. Everyone on earth is talking about this. Everybody. It was on CNN, Twitter. It's trending. All the blue, what's it, blue check marks, they're talking about it. Is it blue check marks? All the blue check marks, they're talking about it. And Geshem, he says it. We all know Geshem. It's Gashmu in the Hebrew, which is a way better name than Geshem. Gashmu, he's talking about this. The you, Nehemiah, and all these Jews intend to rebel. That's why you're building the wall. According to these reports, you, you want to be king. You've also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There's a king in Judah. And now the king, Darius, he's going to hear of these reports. So now come, let's take counsel together. Let's talk about this stuff. What did they just do? They just slandered the work and the man. Did you see that? It's not coming with armies and swords. They're coming with an open letter in public saying, everybody is talking about what you're doing. What you're doing is evil. What you're doing is opposed to the good. What you're doing is rebelling against the king. What you're doing is trying to declare yourself a king. Um, it's even reported, we're not sure about this, but this is what people are saying. He's doing this publicly. We're just hearing rumors that you've actually appointed prophets, um, like paying them, um, so that they'll stand up in the pulpits on Sundays when you guys gather for worship and say, Nehemiah should be king. There's a king in Judah named Nehemiah. In other words, he begins to slander the work that's being done, begin to try to create whispers and division and confusion. I'm trying to say like, hey, what you're doing, this good work, it's actually, it actually seems like it's evil. It actually seems like it's opposed to what is good and right and beautiful. It actually seems like it's in rebellion against authority. It's wicked. It's contrary to love and the common good. Like there's a, there's a pandemic going on. How can you gather for worship? Don't you care about the good? Like don't you care about women's rights? Don't you care about sexual minorities? Don't you care about your neighbors? Nehemiah? just responds with, we haven't done any of the things that you've, you've accused us of. This isn't what we're up to. This isn't what we're doing. Then the next, six, seven to nine, more slander. Nehemiah just wants to be king. It's just a power grab. It's all about power. It's all about um, it's all about wealth. It's all about money and power. I mean, this, by the way, is spot on with this cultural moment. The accusations against biblically faithful Christianity, Christianity that just proclaims the glory of Jesus and the reign of Jesus and seeks to live according to his word, the accusation that comes again and again and again and again in our day from Christian corners. It's all a cover. It's really just about money and power. 
same accusation leveled against Nehemiah. And then last, verses 10 to 14. Listen to this. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabal, sorry Justin, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple for they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. What is that? Let's keep going, verse 12. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. It's the last step that happened. It is those coming and claiming to speak for God, claiming to be teachers, um, claiming to be those who are instructing the um, people and, and advising Nehemiah and what God would have for him. So try to get him to do something Something on the surface seems really reasonable. Hey, just go in the temple and hide. They're not going to come in there and kill you. Just go in there, shut the doors, and you'll be safe. In other words, go into the center of worship. Use worship. Use your religion. Use your church um, as a means of hiding from the opposition that you face out there. Nehemiah's answer is, how could I do how can a man like me go and hide? Plus, who in the world can go into the temple and live? So there arises a handful of different forms that opposition takes, and frankly, opposition that we must learn to expect. Corrupting the work, mocking the work, threat of violence or physical opposition to the work. Distractions from the work, compromise over the work, slandering the work, false theologies, false teaching that will come and put a stop to God's blessing on the work. So, what does any of this have to do with us? What does any of this have to do with our day and what it means to live right now? First, um, I think connected to what we talked about at the beginning, this this kind of um, minimization of the antithesis. We, we have tended to think of opposition to Christianity or, or persecution of Christianity primarily in, 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 in terms like persecution and opposition looks like you're in Malaysia. And because you're a Christian, you're locked up and tortured and told that you should deny the faith. Like That's persecution. That's opposition. Um, and we haven't seen that, that actually what, what, what opposition looks like is far more nuanced. The kind of opposition you'd expect to see. And, and by, it, 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 by making persecution or opposition such an, with such an extreme definition, um, what that's left us with is kind of um, combine that with kind of covering over the antithesis, covering over the division that exists between belief and unbelief, covering over the fact that we're actually supposed to have enemies in the world, um, those who oppose us and those whom we oppose that we're called to love and serve. By covering over those kind of foundational biblical realities, we don't know what, what it is that we're experiencing when we arrive at a moment like this in our culture. Like opposition is not just you being locked up and tortured until you deny the name of Jesus. Opposition looks like, hey, let, let me come and help you build that. 
Opposition looks like, you guys are stupid. Opposition looks like, if you don't stop this, um, we're going to bring a legal injunction against it. If you don't stop this, we're going to come and beat you up. Um, Opposition looks like distraction. Hey, come watch this new Netflix video. No, no, come. We're going to do this this other gathered thing together. Oh, no, stop doing all of that. We're going to go do this. It looks like distractions. It looks like slander. You racist. You bigot. You homophobe. You person that all you care about is yourself. All you care about is money and power. Looks like an entire culture that that perceives and labels anything that seeks to quantifiably serve and love Jesus and give expression to and faithfulness to his word in all areas of life. Um, This terror that, that kind of is reigning over the evangelical church in America of ever being called a Christian nationalist. And nobody knows what that is. But please don't call me that. I really want to make sure you don't call me that. But there's no definition of it. Do you see the power of that opposition? Don't do or believe or say anything. Or someone might accuse you of that. This is the opposition that Jesus is actually talking about. But when he says things like in um, in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Guess what they did to Jesus? They mocked him. They physically opposed him. Um, They uh, they sought to kind of find kind of corrupting sort of partnerships with him. Um, They they tried to distract him from the work he was called to. Um, They slandered who he was and what he was doing. They They said in the end, this is all just about power. It's a power grab. And Jesus says, if they hated me, they'll hate you. First John says, marvel not, my brothers, if the world hates you. Second Timothy 3.12, all that does all, please hear that. Anytime the Bible says things like all, like that should jar you. Like if you're in an argument with your spouse and they say all the time, they just made a mistake in the argument. Right? Not all the time. Like I was sleeping last night at 3 a.m. Didn't do that that time. Whatever it is, right? So anytime the Bible says all, you should stop and go, what in the world? Listen to this. All that desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer opposition. All. All the desire to live a godly life. Which I take to mean if these things that are happening in Nehemiah 6, which happened to Jesus, aren't happening to you. The first question I have to ask is, am I desiring, seeking, pursuing to live a godly life? I think the greatest temptation in this particular cultural moment is to minimize Christian distinctives, to minimize the teaching of Scripture, which, by the way, on every page, you're given a beautiful opportunity to offend everyone. (laughs) 
to minimize those things because no one wants to be slandered. No one wants to be misunderstood. No one wants to be opposed. No one wants to be mocked. No one wants to be embarrassed. One of the gifts of just the spiraling that's been happening in every arena imaginable over the last two years, whether it's the redefinition of justice, the redefinition of beauty, the redefinition of gender, the redefinition of of goodness, the redefinition of of health and life, um, how all of those things are getting spun up by our culture, is that now, maybe more than any other time in the last several generations, um, we have an opportunity to stand and say, this is what the Bible says, and look like idiots. Like there's no level of nuance to what the Bible teaches about sex that will be acceptable to your neighbor. There's none. Ten years ago, maybe. There's no level of nuance to the Bible's definition of justice. That all men and women stand equally before the law of God, regardless of race or socioeconomic status or any of it. We all stand equally and are judged equally. Therefore, laws and finances and everything should reflect that. And you believe that and confess that, which, by the way, 10 years ago was not even remotely controversial. You say it today, you're a racist. Do you see how beautiful this moment is? God has given us this glorious opportunity to simply stand and, and with, 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 to, to let go of all fear of man and to see um, the antithesis, to see the division as clearly as we can because every time you just open the Bible and read it, you'll be mocked, you'll be slandered, you'll be opposed. There's no negotiating it anymore. On, on yesterday, after... Um, I think the longest filibuster in Colorado history, our, our state um, pushed forward. It still has a couple other steps to go, but yesterday, yesterday was the biggest step necessary. Um, the most draconian and wicked abortion law in the nation. Um, one advocate for the law, sorry, advocate for um, pro-choice policies and politics, said that the Colorado law that got voted for yesterday by a vast majority, it makes the New York law look like nice, relatively pro-life. Like, like the, the horror of that is also a gift to us. Do not be confused what we've been called to build in our families, in this church, in our businesses, in our neighborhoods, um, in our relationship with our kids, is not the same, on the same planet, is what unbelief and a desperate love for death is chasing after. That the gift of yesterday's vote, even as I wept upon hearing about it, There is no room for confusion. This isn't some fringe element in society. It is the vast majority of our legislators elected in our state who overwhelmingly supported, celebrated, blew up balloons, danced, 
in celebration that a 40-week-old baby can be torn apart. We're not doing the same thing. Don't be confused. Don't think that we can all just get along. Now, if we seek godliness, if we seek to build a Christian culture and Christian families and Christian schools and businesses that glorify God and lives that glorify God, you will face opposition. We're not doing the same thing. So we build. We love those who hate us. We love those who hate what we love. Because we follow our brother Jesus. The one who saved us. The one who redeemed us. The one who washed us. And did so in the face of horrific opposition. Of mocking and slander. Of beatings and death. We follow our, our brother Jesus We build Christian lives, faithful lives, lives that are marked by allegiance to the glory of God above all other things, lives that seek to obey all of God's words. And we are not once confused that that we are not doing the same things as our neighbors. But we love them anyway. Let's pray now and prepare for communion. So, Father, I pray right now that you would teach us in this moment that the the mixture that we're called to, this mixing of of gravity and joy, this mixing of sobriety about this moment in history and, and, and gladness in the promises that have been given to us. God, that we would learn as your people in the face of horrific darkness and evil, in the face of the promise of opposition and persecution, and the promise of slander, the, the promise of mocking, the, the promise of all of those things that we would also cling to and rejoice in. In fact, that, that all of the sobriety over those things would be overwhelmed by the joy and the promises that you declare that you've won. That you're gathering, even now, men and women from every tongue, tribe, and nation. That the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Um, that this city will be your city. Um, that all the nations will be yours. That we will be filled with light and life and glory and beauty. And that we will feast together forever. And that we anticipate that feast, even now, with bread and wine. So God, may we be clear-eyed. But God, may we be filled with faith and gratitude and joy that overwhelms and overflows in love. In your name we pray, amen. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples.